Ephesians today. Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to start this a little differently. Before we get there, I'm going to go straight to an application before we even get into the sermon. As you know, today is Reformation Day, and probably as you know, tomorrow is Halloween. And uh, one is one of my favorite holidays, and one is not. Uh, You can probably guess, and you can go online and you can read lots of articles that will talk about Halloween, and some will say it's the worst thing ever, and some will say there's no issues at all, and everything in between. But I thought I would take one of the verses from our text today and try to apply it to tomorrow. And so, the, uh, one of the things that were talked about in our text today says, for you were darkness, but now you are light. And I think as we approach this day, the idea is you need to be discerning. There are people who will view this day differently. There are people who will see it as a day when there are no issues at all. It's fine for kids to dress up and get candy. But there's a part that's making this day very dark. There's folks that will make this day very satanic and demonic. And there's folks that will make this day, sadly, very sexual. And I think believers need to avoid any activity that's prohibited by Scripture, which means we should abstain from things that smack of immorality or debauchery or satanic influence or demonic worship. And sadly, those things have crept in predominantly because of our American culture into that holiday. And Scripture's clear. We need to avoid those types of things. Um, And our passage makes that very clear. We're to avoid the sinful deeds of darkness. So as you use your discernment, your wisdom, evaluate what's going on, that's one of the first things you need to see is, is this an issue of darkness? And we should not share our culture's uh, morbid fascination with fear and death because Christ sets us free from fearing uh, and being in bondage to things as fear and death. So when it comes to those things that are not specifically prohibited in Scripture, now we have to use wisdom and discernment. We're going to talk about that some in the sermon uh, today, but I think one of those wisdom discernment questions is, and what we're doing is what I'm doing, is that honoring or dishonoring Christ? And thus decide accordingly. If it's honoring Christ, fine. If it's dishonoring Christ, don't do it. Um, will participating in this violate my conscience? It's Reformation Day. One of the things Martin Luther said, which I'm going to read in a little bit, is I can't go against my conscience. You shouldn't either. If it feels wrong, even if you can't articulate it, it would be wiser not to do it. And third, will participating in this violate my brother or sister's conscience? Will it tempt them to sin? You know, this is the weaker brother principle. I'm not to lead anyone else. 
even if I think it's okay for me, if it's going to hurt my brother and sister in Christ, then I shouldn't do it. And uh, we also need to be cultural. Much of Halloween is American. You can trace all the roots and, and go through that whole history. I think most of that is actually irrelevant. Much of what happens today is late 20th century, early 21st century American. But we now live in one of the most international places in the world, and not every place in the world looks at this. For all of our Latino brothers and sisters, this is a dark day tomorrow. It is the day of the dead, and it's clearly unbiblical. And we can be hurting, particularly our Latino brothers and sisters, when we participate in something that is clearly unbiblical to them. We need to start thinking uh, not just counterculturally, but also multiculturally in this. So avoid what's sinful, apply biblical wisdom to what is not specifically prohibited, and I think most of the time you're going to be fine. But don't enter this day as if you don't have to think about it as if you don't have to be wise and you don't have to be discerning. So, with that said, let's turn to Ephesians. We're going to go through it as we go. And uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word. And as always, we do need it. We thank you that it is truth, it is good, it is right. Lord, our prayer this morning as we come is the prayer of the blind Bartimaeus, who when he heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Son of David, have mercy on me, sir, I would see. We want to make that our prayer this morning. Have mercy on us that we would see Jesus. Take away our blindness, show us ourselves, show us Christ. Show us our need and how Jesus is the only answer to that need. Show us our sin, show us our Savior. Help us see Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. As I said, uh, today is Reformation Sunday, the 499th anniversary of the Reformation. Because on October 31st, 1517, a young monk named Martin Luther drew up 95 propositions or statements for a theological debate. And he took those 95 theses and he nailed them to the front door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. And that was the spark that ignited the Reformation. Now, Luther initially argued for two major convictions. Obviously, there's 95 theses, so he had a lot to say. But there was two kind of really big things. One was that salvation was by faith alone in Christ alone. And uh, the second was that it wasn't popes or councils, but scripture alone was the standard for the Christian's faith and life. And because of those views, which to you probably don't sound all that controversial, but he was declared a heretic in 1521 and summoned to the Imperial Assembly in Worms, Germany by the emperor uh, to answer for these heinous crimes. And standing before the assembly, facing a sentence of death, Martin Luther declared probably the most famous thing that he said. And he said a lot of stuff. Luther has all the best quotes. Calvin's great. We love Calvin. He was brilliant. Luther has all the best quotes. He said, 
My conscience is held captive to the word of God. I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither honest or safe. Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. Amen. You know, as you know, Luther survived. And he went on to implement his reforms throughout Germany, translating the scriptures into the common language, abolishing the office of bishop, replacing it with a pastor for each church, instituting marriage among the clergy, and calling other reformers to the cause of reforming the church according to the word of God. And one of Luther's many, many achievements was moving Christian doctrine from the head to the heart, from being merely an intellectual exercise to being a profound influence on how people actually live, holding up Scripture as the only rule of faith and practice. In that respect, Luther was not original. He was about 1,500 years behind the Apostle Paul, who argues for the exact same thing here in Ephesians. The Apostle spent the first three chapters of Ephesians explaining the Christian faith, teaching us who we are in Christ. And now in the last three chapters, he's changed direction. He says, essentially, because of all that doctrine, here's how you should live. So he's moved from doctrine to duty, from belief to behavior, from calling to conduct. And he does it by using the metaphor of walking. We've already been told back in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And now in chapter 5, he's explaining, what's that walk look like? What does it mean to walk in a manner worthy? And first he tells us that means to walk in love. Verses 1 and 2, walk in love. Here we read, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now this is the simplest possible Christian teaching there is. This is basic Christianity. This is A, B, C, D, E Christianity. If you had to sit down with a five-year-old or the mob that was just up here a few minutes ago, and you want to give them the basics of Christianity, there's not much else you can give a five-year-old except the basics of anything. Five-year-old can't take a lot of explanation. You need to get right to the point. This is it. I don't care if you've read the Bible backwards and forwards and you've read 5,000 books on Christianity. And I'm not saying this is the best verse in the Bible, but I am saying, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That's Christianity. It's all there, every bit of it. It's not a deep verse. Sometimes you hear me say, it's all there, it's really deep, look at the depth. This is not a deep verse. This is a basic verse. This is A, B, C, D, E, Christianity. This is what you give a five-year-old. This is the simplest kind of text. And, you know, we should look at it, realize what a simple sermon this should be. It's not, but it should be, um, mostly because all those other verses we're going to hit. But this is what Christianity is about. When 
you say, you know, when we look at this and walk in love, the NIV says live a life of love, what do you say to a kid? You sit down and say, you need to love other people. That's the Christian life because Jesus loved you by dying on the cross for you. There we go. Five-year-old doesn't need to know a whole lot more about that. If you're trying to explain predestination to a five-year-old, good luck. Let me know how that goes. But basically, the essence of being a Christian is right here. By believing Jesus Christ loved you by offering himself as a sacrifice on the cross for you. Now, I want to pull a principle out of this simple sentence that I think is really, really important. And that principle is that doctrine and practice are absolutely wedded in the Christian life. Your practice, how you live, and your doctrine, what you believe, are absolutely wedded. It's that beautifully simple. Paul, we've been reading in chapter 4 the last couple weeks, he's been explaining how to communicate, how to get along with people, how to use the tongue, how to love, how to forgive. We're in the practical part of the letter. And right in the middle of it, right in this verse, he comes up with this comprehensive doctrine of the vicarious substitutionary atonement of Christ. That may not be in your version. Using a bunch of big words, let me explain. Right in the middle of all this talking about how a person should live, he says, you live this way because Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. There's no right practice without right doctrine. The reason you can walk in love is because you believe that there was a man who was God who offered himself up, it wasn't an accident, to be completely satisfying, that's what fragrant offering means, uh, completely satisfying sacrifice, he stood in our place before God. You can't talk about how to walk in love unless you believe this particular doctrine. Essentially, all of what it means to imitate God can be summed up right here. Walk in love. There's lots of rules and commands, and everything in the Christian life boils down to this. If you're walking in love, you're doing what God requires. You have to understand your Christian life in terms of love. Everything flows out of this. Walk in love. That's what Paul is saying. It's the essence of the Christian life. He doesn't say somersault in love. He doesn't say sprint in love. He doesn't say jump in love. He says walk. Think about that. A somersault is something you do by concentrating your attention and focusing your strength and getting your muscle tension together, and then you very intentionally do it. You have to think about it. Almost nobody says, oh, I just somersaulted. Why did I do that? See, somersault's not spontaneous. It's not natural. It's not routine. A somersault is something you plan to do. Now, let me say, if you've gotten to the place where you do somersaults without thinking about it, you're probably some kind of workaholic acrobat, and you desperately need counseling. (laughs) See, whenever the Bible says walk in something, it's talking about a lifestyle that's routine, that's natural, that's spontaneous, that's continuous. 
And when it says, and walk in love, it means love should be something that's natural. It's part of our day-in, day-out life. Anybody can somersault in love. It means unless you're the worst person in the world, and I don't think you are, you know, if you have to come up with some act of compassion, you can do that. You can come up with it, and you can do it. If you need to show some act of kindness, you can do that. But that's not what Paul's talking about. That's not the real Christianity. Anybody can somersault in love. Anybody can come up with, oh, I need to do that act of compassion. The real issue is, can you walk in love? Does it happen naturally, routinely? If I ask your friends, think of three words that describe this person. Would any of those words be loving? Would they think about that? What does it mean to walk in love? Are you an irritable person? Are you habitually patient and forgiving? Are you an approachable person? Or are you curt or cold or distant? Paul says the only absolutely unmistakable mark of real Christianity is the ability not just to somersault in love, anybody can do that, but to walk in love. You're not living the Christian life unless you're walking in love. So how are you doing? Don't miss that. Don't let me miss that. Don't you miss that. You need to understand the sum of the Christian life here, what it means to imitate God, can be summed up right here, very simply, walk in love. That's why this is ABCDE Christianity. However, it is way easier said than done. And actually, it gets even harder. Because you not only have to walk in love, but verses 3 through 14, you have to walk in obedience. You have to walk in obedience. Let's read these verses. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. There is a lot there. Could be multiple sermons. I'm going to pick out a few key verses to focus on. So in this part of the passage, we're told that to live as a Christian, you have to know sin, know what it is, and walk in obedience. In this whole passage, Paul is saying to live as Christians, we must get a sense of the horror the evil, the danger of sin. 
And he gets that across by saying there are some things you have to know about sin if you're going to live the Christian life. And the first one we see there is verse 11. He sort of defines sin here. He says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. That's one way to understand sin. That means to disobey the law of God, disobey the things God tells us in his word that he wants us to do. And there's an example of that in verse 5, where he says, you may be sure of this, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. There's two examples there of disobedience. The first is immoral or impure. The word immoral used here in the Greek is porneia, from which we get our word pornography, and it's a word that means sexual immorality. The second example is coveting or greed. Now, why would Paul choose those two examples for disobedience? I think because they get across the comprehensiveness of the law of God. You know, there's a lot of churches in our country today that say, what, you know, all the stuff the Bible says about sex and immorality, that's all obsolete. But what it says about greed and materialism and injustice and oppression, that's right on the money, and you need to do that. There are other churches to put a lot of emphasis on denouncing immorality and making a really big deal about it, at the same time ignoring what the Bible says about greed and the importance of our involvement with the poor and not spending too much on ourselves. In other words, the law of God is so comprehensive, it's very difficult for people of a particular temperament to sort of hold it all together. We tend to nullify or ignore part of it and lift up or emphasize other parts. But the law of God is comprehensive. All these things are wrong. And sin is disobedience in your behavior to the law of God. But it's not just a matter of external behavior. Sin has to do with internal motive, too. Paul brings that out. Very same verse. Look at verse 5 again. He says, everyone, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is covetous, that is an idolater. He's talking about the fact that it's possible to not be doing something externally wrong you could externally be in compliance with the law of God, but internally out of a motive that makes it sinful because idolatry is the first of the commandments, right? Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. That means, in brief, God is saying if there's anything more important to you than me, anything that gives you more meaning in life than I do, anything that's a greater foundation for your sense of value and worth and significance than me. If there's anything you love more than me, if there's anything that you're centering your life on more than me, that's a God. That's a religion. That's idolatry. Even if it's a good thing. If your children are more important to you than God. If your career is more important to you than God. If some political cause is more important to you than God, eventually it's going to eat you alive. Because anything that you put in the place of God is going to fail to give you what only God can give you. You see how comprehensive this is? 
Paul says you're going to live as a Christian. You have to understand what sin is. And he gives us this comprehensive understanding of sin being external disobedience and internal idolatry. But he doesn't stop there. He also wants you to see the power of sin over the human heart. Because he doesn't just say in verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. He doesn't just say, you know, don't do those sinful behaviors. He also says, look at verse 8. For at one time you were darkness. He's talking about human nature. He's saying something I think most people in our world today would say is way too strong. He says that human beings don't just do deeds of darkness. They don't just do bad things. They are darkness in their inmost being. That's human nature. They are darkness. There's darkness in the middle of the human heart. And Paul says Christians aren't living in denial about that. Most other people are. And if you're going to live the Christian life, you've got to see not just the definition of sin, but the power of sin over the heart. And third, you have to see the guilt of sin. The guilt of sin. Paul does something. I thought this was actually kind of funny, particularly this year and this time of year. He does what I would say is a big-time no-no for Washington, D.C. Not that he was ever here, but these words fit better than most words. Starting at verse 6, he says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. Washington just went out of business. Because these things, meaning sin, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. We don't like the idea of the wrath of God. Our world does not like the idea of the wrath of God, mostly because we misunderstand it. We're thinking of somebody who loses his temper, loses his cool, loses control. But in the Bible, wrath is talking about judicial condemnation. God's wrath comes on sin because sin deserves punishment. That's the idea. Sin incurs guilt, and if you sin, you're guilty. You're not just messed up. You didn't just screw up. You didn't make a mistake. You're guilty, and sin deserves punishment. That's what it means when it says God's wrath comes upon sin. And people push back on that all the time. I can't tell you how many people have said something to the effect of, you know, there's people out there who deserve God's wrath. There's nasty people. There's bad people out there, you know, Nazis and the Holocaust and all that, and they deserve God's wrath. But, you know, most people are good. I'm a good person. I'm not religious, but I'm good. Isn't that what's important? Think with me for a minute. Imagine an elderly widow who has one child. And as she raises him, she teaches him to always tell the truth, always work hard, and always care for the poor. Honesty, industry, charity. She teaches him how she wants him to live, and he listens to her. So now you know it's an illustration and not a real story. He listens to her. So he grows up. She's poor, but she scrapes together enough to put him through college. He goes to college and he graduates and goes out in the world, and he never talks to her again. Sends her a Christmas card. But he doesn't answer her emails, doesn't answer her phone calls, doesn't answer her letters. 
He doesn't talk to her. But he's good. He does everything she wants. He tells the truth. He works hard. He cares for the poor. And he says, hey, I'm doing what she wants. Isn't that good enough? What would you say to him? No. It's not acceptable just to do what she wants and ignore the relationship with the one person to whom you owe everything. Now, if there's a God, and you say, well, I'm not religious, but I'm good. Isn't that what's important? The answer is no. At some level, it's deplorable. You're guilty, just as much as that young man. If there's a God to whom you owe everything, and then just to live a good life, but not live for God, and not make your relationship with him the main thing, because you owe him everything means you're guilty. It's deplorable. And a Christian should know that. So there's four things here that Paul wants us to get. You cannot live the Christian life if you don't understand the definition of sin and how comprehensive it is. Second, you can't live the Christian life if you don't understand the power of sin and how it affects our hearts. Third, you can't live the Christian life if you don't understand the guilt of sin, what it does to us. But fourth, go back again to verse 8. It says, for at one time you were darkness, talking to Christians, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. You are light. What's that mean? It's not that hard. What does the word light mean in the Bible? He tells you in the very next verse, verse 9. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and true and right. Or good and right and true. Got them mixed up. You think, what in the world? After everything he's just said, and I've been convicted of how big sin is and how powerful it is and how guilty I am, knowing all those things, now I'm supposed to say, hey, look at me. Look at my goodness. Look at my truthfulness. Am I not so brilliant and beautiful in my own righteousness that you need sunglasses to look at me? Why would any Christian say, I am light? Well, the answer is you can say that if you're careful. Let me explain. It's linking us back to the whole first part of Ephesians. Because there in the first three chapters... God says the moment you receive Christ, the moment you believe in him as your Lord and Savior, you are united to him. You are in Christ. In a sense, in yourself, you're still sinful and uh, darkness, but in Christ, God sees you as brilliant and beautiful, as good and right and true. Now, if you live your life and you only believe part of what Paul said, and you're, I'm so dark, I'm so awful, I'm so bad, I got all this bad stuff, I'm a mess, it's really not my fault, it's everybody else's fault, but everything I do makes me feel guilty. You are not living the Christian life. Weirdly enough, if you hate yourself, if you go around feeling self-loathing, you won't walk in obedience. You'll give in to temptation almost every time. On the other hand, if you only believe part of this and you say, you know, I'm fine, I'm accepted, God loves me. He thinks I'm beautiful. He's forgiven me. So it doesn't matter how I live. And you are not walking in obedience. In this whole passage, Paul is saying sin is darkness. 
Avoid it. Have nothing to do with it. It's awful. Call it what it is. So there's a balance in knowing your light in the Lord and wanting nothing to do with sin. This comes across, I think, uh, this balance comes across wonderfully in our own Westminster Confession of Faith. The historic summary of what the PCA believes about what the Bible teaches. In chapter 15, verse 4, there's one sentence. It says, As there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation, so there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. Sin is that bad, and grace is that good. Just as there is no sin so small, but it deserves condemnation, there is no sin so great it can bring condemnation on those who truly repent. And if you live your life in light of these two balancing truths, then you have an incentive to live in a godly way. You'll be able to pick yourself up when you sin without destroying yourself and hating yourself. And you will, by knowing sin, walk in obedience. But it gets even harder. Because you not only have to walk in love and walk in obedience, very quickly you have to walk in wisdom. Verses 15 through 17, walk in wisdom. Paul's sort of evoking everything the Bible says about wisdom right here in these three verses. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. It's brief, but it's a point all by itself. Saying, living the Christian life is not just a matter of obeying the rules. And God's given you a lot of them. We just talked about how comprehensive they are. But it's also knowing how to live in the 80% of life where there's no specific rule. Where the moral rules don't apply. It's a whole lot of life. You can't look up a verse that says, I should do this. You know, there's all kinds of people you could marry. None of them are ruled out by the law of God. There's all kinds of jobs you could take. Few of them are ruled out by the law of God. Some are. There are all kinds of choices you can make. So you have all these options in life, and none of them are ruled out, yet some of them are very wise, and some of them are very foolish. And that's what Paul is saying. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The Lord's will is always what the Bible says. You know, somebody says, I think God wants me to do this, and you can actually point to the verse that says, don't do that. Then that's not what God wants them to do. End of discussion. Maybe not for them, but for me. How do you decide what's the right thing to do when the Word of God doesn't directly say this is right or this is wrong? Well, first of all, the word that Paul's using here is walk. When you walk, you're going somewhere. There's always a direction. Now, let's say you're trying to make a lot of money. Is there anything wrong with that? No. Look at Job. Look at Abraham. That's fine. But for what purpose? What are you making the money for? What are you working for? You're trying to get up the career ladder? Fine. What are you trying to get up the career ladder for? What's your real purpose? What are the motives of your heart? Is it to gain power? Is it to gain approval so people will like you? Is it to gain control because that's how I get security? Or is it to serve God? And is it to serve the people around you? 
So there's nothing wrong with the activity, but be careful how you walk. Look at the motives of your heart. Find out what you're doing it for. It doesn't hurt us to examine ourselves sometimes. Determine the impact of that activity on your soul and on the souls of the people around you. And if you don't try to find out what your motives are, and if you don't expect a great amount of self-deception on your way to finding out what your motives are, then Paul says you're foolish. That's what he's saying. Second verse 16 says, Make the best use of time, because the days are evil. What Paul means is, if you know your heart, and you know the word of God, when you see the options in front of you, what's the best use of your time? Which one brings the most good? What's the best use of your gifts? What's best for the people around you? If you have too high a view of yourself or too low a view of yourself, you're going to make foolish decisions. Wisdom's a matter of understanding human nature. It's part of what it means to be a Christian. Don't ever think that being a Christian is this mechanical thing where you get the rule book and follow it. You do have to follow the rule book, but you find the rule book doesn't apply to all kinds of things that you have to do in everyday life. So the wisdom that comes from knowing the Word of God, the wisdom that comes from knowing your own motivations, the wisdom that comes from knowing human nature is what enables you to make the best use of your time. And that's part of being a Christian. But you not only have to walk in love and walk in obedience and walk in wisdom, but even harder yet, you have to walk in joy. Great. I have to be loving, I have to be obedient, I have to be wise, and now you want me to be happy about it. You're pushing your luck, Silvernail. Maybe I am, and maybe I'm not. Let's see what the text says, starting at verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Here's the bottom line. We're going to focus on verse 18, and I'm going to add those other verses next week. The heart of what it means to live the Christian life is joy. Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Why does Paul contrast those two things? I think for this reason... He's saying being filled with the Spirit is to get the thing that people get drunk to get. He's saying you don't have to get drunk to get joy. Now, we all know alcohol makes you happy because it's a depressant. That doesn't mean it makes you depressed. It means it's a chemical that depresses part of your brain. You know, you get in trouble, so you get drunk. Why do you feel better? Because your brain is less aware of your problems. The Holy Spirit operates in the exact opposite principle. The Holy Spirit doesn't make you less aware of your problems. He makes you more aware of your resources. That's the difference. Because the Holy Spirit takes the person and work of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done, and makes it so real to you that you begin to wonder, what were those problems? In other words, the reason we're disobedient, the reason we make Foolish choices is because we're not joyful enough in Christ. Why do you make foolish decisions? 
often it's because you're empty and unhappy inside and you make bad decisions because you're miserable. Why do you disobey? Why do you give in to temptation? Why do you blow up and then wish you hadn't? Why do you do things and then wonder, why did I do that? You didn't have enough joy to be obedient. I know it sounds strange to hear a Presbyterian say that. This could be a Babylon Bee article. Presbyterian speaks of joy. No one knows what he's talking about. What I mean is you need to have a deep-seated joy in the middle of your life because you find your joy in Jesus. It comes because the Spirit fills you. It doesn't mean you get more of the Spirit. It means you're dominated by what the Spirit thinks and does. What does the Spirit do? Jesus tells you, using different names uh, for the Holy Spirit, he says when the Comforter comes, when the Counselor comes, when the Advocate comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, John 16, he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. I know that Jesus Christ was the only perfectly obedient person who ever lived, but then he died on the cross to take the curse from my disobedience. And when I'm moved by that and amazed by that, it makes me want to be obedient. I see Jesus Christ living a wise life and not a foolish life. I see his ultimate wisdom on the cross where somehow beyond what anybody else could ever come up with, the law of God and the love of God are both fulfilled at once. On the cross, the law of God is satisfied and he doesn't have to punish us, but the love of God is satisfied and he can save us and we can be light in the Lord. To the degree that the Holy Spirit takes those things that you know with your head and captures your heart with them, then you'll have enough joy to be wise and obedient. It's making Jesus as glorious as he really is in your eyes. It dominates you. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. What do you think Isaac Watts meant when he wrote that wonderful hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross? What's he doing? He's looking at doctrine. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. He's thinking about who Jesus is, not just the man, but the Prince of Glory. And how does that hymn end? Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Looking at the doctrine, you see the truth. And that truth that Jesus' love for you is so amazing that it should drive you to walk in love with the one who loved us and gave himself for us. It should drive you to walk in obedience with the one who became obedient to the point of death. It should drive you to walk in wisdom with the one who became to us wisdom from God. And if you understand way down deep inside the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus your Lord, then you'll begin to experience what it means to walk in joy. This is basic Christianity. This is A, B, C, D, E Christianity. There's no Christian life apart from Christian doctrine, and you can't walk with Christ if you don't know the worth of Christ. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. God, thank you that you have spoken to us once again by your Son. 
And once again, open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. Teach us the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Enable us to see and know and believe this basic Christianity, that we're to walk in love because Jesus loved us and gave himself up for us. Help us to see we can never get beyond that. Help us to be as little children and to receive this truth into our souls. How great it would be if we understood sin and understood wisdom and knew the joy the Spirit can give. Lord, we long for that kind of life. We ask that you would make it a reality in our lives as we take up the bread and the cup, for there you meet with your people at your table. And we pray for this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please stand as we receive God's blessing. It is our tradition to open our eyes and have our hands out to receive the blessing of our Lord and Savior today from 1 Peter chapter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Amen. See you this afternoon.